wonder what brings you here today. You know, there's a lot of reasons why people come together to attend a service like this, or any service for that matter. A lot of reasons. We call these services, I guess, out of, out of habit or out of just uh, practice. We call these, these services that we have worship services. And we invite people to come to worship. People have an expectation that when they come to worship, they're going to, they're going to meet with God and they're going to be blessed and they're going to be encouraged. And rightfully so, because the fact is that when you, when you worship God rightly, when you worship God in an acceptable fashion, the result of that is in fact that you receive blessing. You are blessed. Unfortunately, I, I don't want to be in any way negative or a downer this morning, but I have to start off this way. I'm sorry. Most of what happens uh, these days as far as worship services doesn't have as much as I would like to do with worship. There's nothing wrong with most of what takes place in services these days, but but worship, unfortunately, is a very small part of what happens. We talk about worship in terms of the music and the worship time and the worship portion. And of course, I'm talking in a very narrow and very strict sense of the term worship today. We have a lot of praise. We have a lot of jubilation. We have rejoicing. All very fitting, all very important, all very needed, all very true and right. When Jesus was born, the angels rejoiced. Glory to God in the highest. We read in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, where David was so excited that he danced uh, rather uniquely, shall we say, before the Lord and before other people. So jubilation is part of the celebration of God and who He is. Being excited about the victorious reality of God and what He's done for us is truly something we ought to do on a regular basis. We ought to be motivated to do that. To do that. But when it comes to worship, as A.W. Tozer said, worship is the missing jewel within the church. Part of that is because we don't understand worship. The first thing I want to do this morning is I want to have you notice the contrast between those who worship and those who don't worship. So as you, as you look at your, notice, your notes, I want you to notice the contrast with me. In Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen. That's not on the screen. <laughs> All right, so as you look at your notes, uh, the first thing I want you to take notice is the fact that there's a contrast. In Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen, 
he says, Blessed is the man, this is the Amplified, Blessed is the man who reverently and worshipfully fears the Lord at all times, regardless of circumstances. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord is what is in most of the translations that you have. And, and the word there that's used for fear has to do with reverence and awe. It is tied directly to worship. But blessed are those who worship. Blessed are those who worship the Lord reverently at all times, regardless of their circumstances. We contrast that with the end of that verse in, in Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen, where calamity befalls those who don't worship. Calamity. He says, he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Now, obviously, there's a connection. It's not a disjointed verse. It's one verse. He said, blessed is the man who reverently and worshipfully fears the Lord at all times, regardless of circumstances, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. There's a, there's a direct relationship between worship and blessing and worship when you don't worship and calamity or trouble. A great, a great important lesson for us to learn is that whenever you worship rightly, when you, whenever you worship acceptably, whenever you worship appropriately and righteously, your life will be blessed. God will bless you. He will pour out his blessing on your life. But when you don't, it is an act of the will. Worship is not something, it's not something that you don't do because it's inconvenient. It's something you choose not to do. And we were made to be worshipers of God. So when you harden your heart toward God and you don't worship him, the result of that is trouble, calamity. So we're going to find out this morning, as we look at the second point of your notes, the definition of worship. The definition of worship. Uh, generally speaking, worship is honor paid to a superior being. To worship means to give homage, honor, reverence, respect, adoration, praise, or glory to a superior being. Worship is used indiscriminately in the scriptures. This term worship is used indiscriminately to refer to homage given to idols, material things, or to the one true God. So in the Bible, you find this term being used to describe people who worship idols, people who worship stuff. See, worship all by itself is just simply a term. It's a term that has a very specific meaning to it. It means to pay honor to a superior being. And so you can choose whatever that being is. You can pay homage to a chair if you want to. I mean, there's people who pay homage to doorknobs. There are people that pay homage to trees. There are people that pay homage to their cars. There are people that pay homage to their homes. There are people that pay homage to the dollar bills that they have in their pocket or their bank account. So worship is just simply a statement of fact. It is... It is paying homage or honor to that which is superior. And who determines what is superior? We do. We decide this has more value than that. And so we worship that. Generally speaking, that's what you need to know. Now, it's really interesting in the Old English. Worship is made up of two Old English terms. Weirth, which means worth, and Sipe, which means ship. 
ship. So it means the quality of having worth. Worthship. The quality of having worth. It's much like we use the word friendship. I have a friendship with someone, and so therefore there is a quality between us that they are my friend. Or sportsmanship. Someone who is a sportsman. They have a quality about them. They are a sportsman. So here when we talk about worship, we're talking about giving honor to something that has the quality of worth. Those are the two Old English terms that we use. Now in biblical terms, the Old Testament uses the the two different words specifically and primarily yare, which means to fear or to revere. Revere. Or shaha. Shaha means to depress or prostrate oneself. That doesn't have anything to do with being depressed. It means to put yourself down. (laughs) In the presence of a being that is greater. Put yourself down to prostrate oneself. In the New Testament, the primary word that's used for worship is the word uh, proskuno, proskuneo, which is to kiss toward or to bow down or to prostrate oneself. So when you think about worship within Christianity, we prostrate ourselves before God in respect and honor, giving him the glory that is due his holiness and superior character because he is worthy. Because he's worthy. So now that we've got all that down, now that all of us know what worship is, We understand that we can worship what we choose. But we have to remember some things about worship. Worship, as we've defined it here, both generally through the old English words, biblically and in Christianity, worship, worship always results in devotion. Worship always translates into commitment. Worship always results in service. And so you notice when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the evil one and, and he said to Jesus, you know, Jesus, if you'll just simply worship me, I will give you all of this stuff, all this whole world. And, and you know that Jesus was already guaranteed the world. He's going to get the whole thing. He's not going to get part of it. He's going to get the whole thing. It is going to be his. So in essence, what Satan was saying, worship me, And you don't have to go through all the heartache and all the pain and all the suffering. And you can have it right now. But Jesus said to him in response, quoting from the scriptures, that you shall worship the Lord your God only and him only shalt thou serve. In other words, you serve whatever you worship. You serve whatever you worship. So this morning, I want to spend the the majority of the time we have left talking with you about the two things the final things on the back of your notes there the first one is i want you to recognize the importance of worship with me this morning i want you to recognize its importance worship's importance you know worship is so important so vital so critical that when god gave the commandments his very first commandment was that you shall have no other gods before me No other gods. And he wasn't just talking about man-made gods. He wasn't just talking about gods that we would uh, 
may be formulated in our thinking, he was talking about anything that could be put in a place of higher priority than he, God. You'll have no other gods before me. Worshiping God and giving ourselves to him and honoring him and giving him the glory is the greatest priority of our lives, to worship him, to worship him. The premier passage in the New Testament, in fact, I would suggest in all of Scripture, is found in John chapter 4, verses 20 to 24, when, when Jesus is having this conversation with this, this woman. And it says the following. She says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. By the way, over eight times, maybe even ten times if you look at the various usages of the word, in this brief passage, this issue of worship is used. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Talking to the woman, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Through the lineage of David came Jesus Christ. Salvation came through Judaism. He says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's the uh, contrast here between two extremes. Spirit and truth. There are many around the globe who worship in spirit. But they lack truth. And then there's another host in this world who worship in truth. But they lack spirit. Some have said that uh, those who worship in spirit and not truth can be exemplified by those who've taken over the insane asylum. And some have said that those who worship in truth without spirit can be identified as those who are now resting quietly in the cemeteries around the globe. So do you want dead orthodoxy on the one hand, or do you want to have on the other hand lively celebrations that don't have any root, rootedness in truth. No. Jesus says you have to have both. You have to have both. You have to have truth because, because truth is what helps you to understand who God is and what He's done. Truth is what allows us to be able to embrace who He is, how much He loves us, and the result of that, obviously, is the response of the Spirit. They need to go hand in hand. And throughout the Scriptures, you see worship with both of those elements in mind. Spirit and truth. Remember when Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, when he was struck deeply as a result of his 
his uncle's death, the year that King Uzziah died. He was torn up. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he saw angels crying, holy, holy, holy. And, and that's, that's what was truth communicated to Isaiah. And his response to that was what? Woe is me. Woe is me for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. His response was spirit-led. Truth. It's almost like a, a back and a forth that takes place in the life of a worshiper. Truth leads to a response in the spirit, leads to more truth, leads to more response in the spirit, leads to more truth. There's always that balance that continues to go on in the life of a worshiper. It is truth about who God is and what he's done that causes us to worship, to bow down, to kneel, to be prostrate to depress our self-exaltation and humble ourselves before him. That's worship. That's worship. And so he says that the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. By the way, it's amazing when you look at this interaction between the woman and Jesus. The woman was a Samaritan and they worshiped in spirit. They really did. They lacked some truth. They only accepted portions of the, of the writings of the scriptures. And, and they were a little bit off base in a whole bunch of areas. And, uh, and then you look at the Jesus and, and, and the Jews. Man, they worshipped in truth, but they had no concept of the igniting fires of the Spirit in their lives. They were dead. Yet they had life in all that they taught. And this poor woman, she was alive. But she was dead because she had no basis in fact. Truth, spirit, and in truth. It is so important, this thing of worship. It is so important that when you look into the Old Testament, you find that God specifically, specifically in Exodus chapter 30, verses 34 to 38, that God gives a direct assignment for them to come up with this very special incense. All the details are given there. Exactly how much of this and how much of that. And this was to be put together. And this particular fragrance was specifically and solely set apart for worship. In fact, in that passage, it's pretty powerful. God says, if any of you takes this awesome recipe... And you put it together because it sure smells really, really good. And you use this in your home, I'm going to take your life. Because it was holy. It was set apart for worship. For worship. Pretty amazing, I think. Oh, I think about, I think about Mary, too. You know, Mary, in John chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we have the story of Mary who who goes looking for Jesus, who happens to be at one of the religious leaders' homes. And she comes in with this incredible, costly perfume. And what does she do? There's no singing there, by the way. There's no, 
what we would incorporate into our concept of worship, but it's loaded with worship. She, she is pursuing truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. She pursues Jesus, and when she finds Jesus, who's in this gathering of religious leaders, and she is by far not respected nor even um, really acceptable in terms of coming into this gathering. And yet she does. She comes right in and she gets down at Jesus' feet and she pours this incredibly expensive ointment on Jesus' feet. And then she takes her hair and she washes and wipes his feet. The fragrance of worship is self humiliating the fragrance of worship is humility to the core it is so important that in the context of that jesus did not tell her what are you doing spending all that money wasting it all on my feet but there was someone who did say that the fellow that later on went out and hung himself. His name was Judas. And Judas looked around and he said, what is she doing wasting all that money? Precious ointment. And Jesus said, hey, you're always going to have the poor with you, but you're not always going to have me. She chose to do the right thing. It's an amazing concept when you think about people who worship rightly and the importance of worship, the importance and the value of worship eliminates, eliminates our worldly concept of what is valuable and what is not. Eliminates it. The woman comes and she takes her prized possession, everything that she has, and she pours it on his feet, all gone in a matter of moments. But what an act of worship. Now, if she had gone there with this precious ointment with a desire and a determination that she was going to pour it all out and then she was going to turn around after she poured it all out and worshipped and say, Jesus, I did that. Now I want from you X, Y, Z. Folks, that's not worship. Worship expends all because that which you are worshipping is worth all expecting nothing in return. But as we started the message, you know, you know, whenever you worship rightly, whenever you worship acceptably, God always, always blesses you, blesses your life. The importance of worship. One more quick example that I wanted to share with you about this, and that is, that when you think about ministry and the stuff that takes place in the church, ministry comes down from the, fa- from the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit into the lives of God's people. Ministry descends. Worship begins in the hearts of God's people and in the power of the Spirit through the Son comes up to the Father. It ascends. Ministry and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are the things that are a result of what God gives us so that we can be effective. Our worship is what we give to God. What we give to God. 
In fact, in that definition that you have on the first page, you'll notice that I underlined the word giving. Prostrating ourselves before God in respect and honor, giving Him the glory that is due His holiness. Giving. The essence of worship is giving. Giving. So if we talk about coming to a worship service, then every single one of us ought to be coming here with the focus to give. I'm not talking dollars. I hope this makes sense. Sorry, I couldn't resist that one. Some of you just caught it. I'm not talking dollars, but I sure hope this makes sense. <laughs> that was bad. Okay, I accept. I'll keep my day job. <laughs> you, you need to understand how vital this is. How critical this is. When you go to worship, when you come to worship, when you're involved in worship, it's all about giving. It's about giving your heart. It's about giving your life. It's about giving everything you have. Worship is giving to the one who has the greatest value in your life. And we worship him in spirit and in truth. Did you know? Did you know? We haven't even gotten to the last example, but we will. Did you know that when God established the tabernacle, it took 243 verses, seven chapters for God to discuss the standards, the measurements, the furnishings, all the details of the tabernacle. Seven chapters. Seven chapters. It only took 31 verses to describe all of creation. 31 verses for creation, 243 verses for the tabernacle. Do you understand the importance of worship? God says this is a critical aspect. Every detail of the tabernacle was written down. Every detail. It wasn't impressive on the outside, but man, when you start to look at the inside and the mercy seat and the Holy of Holies and how God orchestrated the whole thing and put it together. Not only that, the amazing encampment around the tabernacle and how God established God's people and set them up. I mentioned already Isaiah and how worship was a priority for the angels. What did they do? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Holy. The greatest truth that leads us to worship is the truth of God's holiness, His beauty, His, His power, His greatness, and His glory. So, worship is obviously a very, very important part of our lives. It was also a very important part of the, of the story that we look at each year when we think about the birth of Jesus Christ. And so we want to look at the example, number four, the example that's found of the wise men. The wise men. And I guess to an extent, the example also of Herod and the example of the religious leaders, they're all here. But the primary example we want to see is the wise men. Let me just read it this morning for you in Matthew chapter 2. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, 
Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was, has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who, is, who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time of the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, go and search. Search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, Report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men, Herod, and the religious leaders. Let's start off by talking about Herod. Herod's motivation was fear, anxiety. He said the right things. He got the right information from the right place. But he had no intention of worshiping Christ. No intention whatsoever. He was abusing. He was misusing. He was manipulating the situation because of his anxiety and fear over what this child would do to him. The guy was paranoid to begin with. I mean, anybody who kills half of his family and anybody who gives any kind of a threat to him as a king, anybody who behaves that way is obviously paranoid. And he came by it naturally. His father was killed by somebody within his close circle. And so this guy is a paranoid dude. And so you have these people that show up in his city. And by the way, they weren't three guys on a camel. Each one having a camel, like they're pictured often. These were magi. These were were men who probably had an entourage that included an army and people that would take care of horses and people that would would provide for the meals and everything else. These were were nomads. These were people that had everything and they they traveled in masses. So you have these, these, these wise men that show up. And they're all over town. They're all over Jerusalem. They're saying, where's this one that's born king of the Jews? Where's this one born the king of the Jews? And of course, the, uh, the one who had the title king of the Jews, Herod, who, by the way, wasn't a Jew, but he married into the Jewish uh, tradition so that somehow he could have some connection. He was a, he was a weasel. <laughs> but to be right, to be very frank with you, he reminds me a lot of, of a lot of people today who talk about worship who 
say the right things about worship, but they have no real intention of worshiping. Herod wanted to kill this child, and so many people today are manipulative and all that kind of stuff, and they say, I want to worship, but they don't want to worship. They just want to keep him in his, in his box. They just want to keep him in his box. And then you had the religious leaders. And the folly of these religious leaders. They knew it all. They had it all. They're the ones that gave the answers. They're the the ones that said, this is where you need to go. This is where it is, right here in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Here it is, Herod. Well, how come they weren't? Eager to go that little tiny journey to worship the king. How come they didn't put any effort in? Obviously their lives were on the line as they talked to Herod and gave him the information. And so maybe theirs was also a little bit of a manipulation, if you will. PC, if you will keeping their jobs, if you will, whatever the situation, they were more interested in securing their own existence than they were in worshiping the king. So who did Herod worship? Himself. And by the way, as I've said often, there's a little Herod in every single one of us. And who did the religious leaders worship? Themselves. And there's a little bit of hypocrisy in every single one of us. And then the wise men. The wise men. Remember, what is at the core of worship? Worship means giving. Giving honor. Giving reverence. Giving glory and praise. Giving ourselves to God who is worth everything. So in this particular story of the wise men, let me just run through some of the things that they gave. They gave their discipline. Their discipline to study. Their discipline to find out truth. Their discipline to search out truth. They disciplined themselves. They were constantly looking. And you can trace that right back to Daniel. Right square back to Daniel. Daniel in captivity. And God honors him and God blesses him and God shows favor on Daniel and raises him to a position where he has great influence among all the magi. No doubt he told them about Jeremiah's prophecy that there's this one coming. The king is coming. And so you have, you have this incredible response of the Magi as they diligently studied, studied. Not only did they give their diligence, they gave their energy. It was no small feat for them to gather together all of the stuff they needed to take and all of the, all the equipment to rally all their people, etc., to make this journey. It wasn't a half a day it wasn't one day this was a journey from the east and they came from the land over there that that we call often persia and the surrounding areas they came from there all the way and they traveled with this massive entourage they gave their energy their energy they gave their time they gave their time 
when they got to Jerusalem. I think they also gave up their reputation. When you read the passage, when you read the passage, uh, it has a very unique flair to it in, in that it's telling us that when they got there, they were going all over the place and they were constantly asking. They didn't just show up and ask one time. Why do you think the, the passage tells us that not only was Herod all disturbed and upset, but all Jerusalem was too? They knew Herod. They knew the trouble they were in. They knew the kind of person he was. They knew the conflict. And here are these people that are walking around saying, where's this one born king of the Jews? Not once, but constantly. The inference is they were going everywhere, to this shop, to that shop, to these people, to those people. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? It's amazing to me. They didn't give one single thought to whether Herod cared or not. It did not phase them. It didn't deter them. They gave him their passion. Their passion. Regardless of the circumstances, they gave their passion. They traveled all this distance. They gave their energy, their time, their reputation, their passion. And then you see at the end, they gave their gifts. Most of the time when you read the story, you focus on the gifts. They gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But do you know those gifts were not, 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 not even, they were not even close to the value of all the other things combined that the wise men came and gave to Jesus. Because all of the things that we've mentioned encompass their worship of Jesus. Jesus was so valuable to them. Jesus was so important to them that they were willing to give all as well as those gifts. And that's because they gave themselves. When you give yourself, when you give yourself, you give everything. There's that there's that carol that we sing often. And I, I, it wasn't until this week that I really thought about that, this carol and I, I wondered at whether or not it's really all that, excuse me for saying this, whether it's really all that it ought to be. The carol basically says, you know, that, that he's, he's the king and I come to worship and the carol declares that I don't have this and I don't have that. And I don't have the other thing, but what will I give him? Well, I guess I'll just give him my heart. And I don't know why, but this last week, that carol struck me. What do you mean you'll just give him your heart? (laughs) Folks, when the wise men worshipped, they gave their all. Their all. All that you have is nothing, but when you give your heart, you give your all. So don't bemoan what you don't have. When you give your life in worship, you fall down before the king 
and you give him your whole life, everything comes with it. Everything comes with it. Your gold, your frankincense, your myrrh, however much or little it might be. The home you live in, the clothes you wear, the food you eat, the breath you breathe. You just become a symphony of worship. And you walk around praising him. And your life smells. It has a fragrance about it. A fragrance, just like the, just like the uh, couple that went to France. And when they were in France, they decided to go to this, this place called Garza, which was the capital and still is, capital of, of where all of the perfumes are made. They went there. They were just visitors, tourists. And they came back and they didn't buy anything there. They didn't get a bag from there. They didn't have any badges. They didn't have anything that indicated that they went to Garza. But when they showed up back at the hotel and they were walking in, the clerk said, oh, you've been to Garza. And they thought, well, how does he know? They smelled. They smelled. Beloved, when you worship, when you worship in spirit and in truth, you smell different. You smell different. Lord, we want to thank you today that when we worship you rightly and when we worship you in spirit and in truth, our lives are blessed. Lord, we give a Christmas offering that'll last all year long. Today, we worship you. We give you what you are due. We thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.